All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm talking to you from New York City on this, the sixth day of July, 2021. And I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. also like to encourage you to send along whatever comments you have about this show to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. also want to thank our sponsors uh, for the show. Today's sponsors, Novo Resources, Eloro Resources, Irving Resources, Hannon Metals, Labrador Gold Corp., Lion One Metals, SK Mining Corp., and V Gold Corp., and Firefox Gold. I've titled today's show, Is America in Decline?, and preparing for the outcome. Former New South Wales Judge Michael Pembroke visits for the first time. Michael Oliver and Michael Hudson return, so we have all the Michaels today. For, uh, from his cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan background, Michael Pembroke will discuss important geopolitical changes underway with the center of power and wealth shifting from the Atlantic to the Pacific regions of the world. And I want to ask Michael Pembroke, what are the causes of America's declining power and wealth? Also, aside from Asian countries, which regions of the world will fare best and which ones not as well uh, if uh, we're seeing this shift of economic well-being to the Pacific? Also, how should we as individuals prepare to survive in a much less affluent setting if indeed Michael's uh, assumptions turn out to be true? One suggestion always offered on this show is to trade rapidly declining fiat money for tangible assets, starting with real money, gold and silver, uh, and the companies that discover and mine those monetary metals. Um, As I'm saying, um, we will be talking to Michael Hudson in uh, just a few minutes after our first commercial break. Uh, He is going to help us understand and uh, come up to date with the changes that are being made uh, by Hudson or, or by Hannon Metals uh, in their sedimentary hosted uh, deposit, which I guess it's too early to call it a deposit, but massive um, a, a massive evidence of a huge a sedimentary hosted copper and silver uh, in, uh, in Peru. So Michael will be with us after the first commercial break to talk about that. Uh, and again, Michael Pembroke will be with me during the second half of the hour to talk about uh, the idea of uh, money moving and wealth moving from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Uh, But right now, I'm really happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again to give us his latest views on the markets. And uh, thank you, Michael, for joining me again. Hi, Jay. So really good to have you with me again, as always, every other week. It's uh, it's something that I know our listeners don't want to miss when you're on. Um, And I want to ask you, last time we spoke, you were talking about 
the um, gold investors should really keep their eyes on the equity markets. You thought the equity markets and the turn, and I think you're seeing them uh, probably being very vulnerable now, uh, a decline in equity markets probably bullish for gold. Is that still your view? Yeah, that's still my view. Um, I know there's a lot of gold investors who only remember March of 2020, where we had a crash event in stock market, which caused selling of a lot of assets and buying of others. Like uh, they bought the dollar, but they dumped, uh, you know, even gold miners. Uh, mm-hmm. Had not been trending, actually, with the stock market over the prior years, but in that few days uh, of one week there, about five or six days, GDX collapsed along with the S&P. Uh, not during the entire three-week collapse of the S&P, but just about five or six days it joined in. And that was because of the panic situation, you know, monetary, um, mm-hmm. not monetary, people having to liquidate assets, period, blindly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I'm looking for a stock market top. Um, and our work, uh, we put out a big report late last week uh, called The Game's Afoot, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. Uh, actually, the game is just below their feet. Uh, the numbers that the S&P is dancing on right now it's literally a percent or two above numbers that if it drops through them during this quarter and this month especially, it's going to start a downside. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't get real specific about numbers here, but just to say that it's not far below the current market, back in the middle of uh, the range of last week, for example, mm-hmm. we'll start triggering sell numbers on a lot of momentum indicators that say, okay, we're going down. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't look like a crash to me. It looks like a normal topping-type process that the market produces whenever it makes a top, and that's usually not dramatic. You go back and look at 2000, go back and look at 2007. Those tops were layered beasts. They didn't collapse. Mm-hmm. There was no crash. It, it was confusing for the first year of the bear market, where the bulls thought every dip was a buy because it would rally, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's what we're in for. Now, we haven't triggered our numbers yet, but when we do, I think the market will go down. Again, not margin call panic situation like mm-hmm. last March. Therefore, that, that effect on the gold miners, for example, should not, not, not occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, the big issue to, to us is this. What is the prevalent investor notion out there about the Federal Reserve? And we all know what it is, and that is, oh, golly, because of the commodity price inflation, um, there's always been stock price inflation, but the, when it comes to commodities, that seems to get the Fed on edge, and they maybe will, they'll you know, pull back their pro, uh, policy and mm-hmm. taper. And so that's the assumption is, oh, they're going to taper, therefore, in 2022. Uh, okay, if the stock market turns down and becomes a negative factor, not just for investors, but psychology of consumers, and you, no doubt it will have that effect. Why? Because even people who aren't in the stock market know that they could be laid off by their company if, if you know, the economy slumps again and they're looking at the stock market. So the Fed knows, and it has not had a problem with the stock market over the last uh, year because the stock market's mm-hmm. been rising from that March low. Uh, it's not been a negative factor. If it suddenly becomes a negative psychological factor, the Fed is not going to taper. Period. Yep. So that whole assumption that is so prevalent will go right out the window and we'll realize that, hey, they're not going to quit. Okay, well, mm-hmm. what assets do you want to own if they're not going to quit? Mm-hmm. And yep. the answer is simple. So that's, the, uh, that's a big issue there. And I think if you're in the gold market, silver, or the miners, you should pay very close attention to what the S&P 500 does and the NASDAQ 100. Mm-hmm. And there's specific numbers below, but they're not far. And again, yeah. once they happen, it's not going to be a dark shade being pulled down. It's going to be an arm wrestling match, but in mm-hmm. the opposite direction. 
mm-hmm. one that will cause the Fed to be accommodative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's very positive for gold, and I think it's building in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's a, and I, I think Michael, that's one of the reasons we came off the March low in yeah, gold. But, but certainly if we see inflation continuing, it's not just transient, but it becomes more of a problem. The Fed's going to have a lot of pressure on it to put up. I mean, it's going to be caught between a rock and a hard place. It can't raise rates or, you know, as you point out, the equity market will have a hissy mm-hmm. fit. Uh, you know, it's not just the psychology, Michael. It's also the pension funds, you know, have had mm-hmm. to go out on the risk curve. They can't buy treasuries anymore because they don't give any yield. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do buy mm-hmm. treasuries. They, I mean, they're one of the biggest treasury buyers or pension funds. But, but they used to be safe, sort of secure institutions. Now they've gone out. And so what happens if the equity market starts to tank? That, you know, they, they have little choice, yeah. No, we'll have yeah. problems. Uh, you'll have problems if the federal government have to come in and save some pension funds, no doubt about it. And uh, the Fed will be the backdrop and backstop to that. Uh, yeah. no, I, uh, I think it's, it's the big issue is what that stock market does, because if it becomes a factor, it should be wind at the back of gold because it's at the wind at the back of the Federal Reserve. And also, if the stock market goes down, you can bet that the economic numbers that they're looking at that they want to see reach certain levels, not just project that they might reach certain levels, but actually get there, get unemployment numbers at levels they want, and keep them there for a while, which is the, uh, what he said in his press conference. Uh, it's not just anticipation. I want to see the numbers he said and for a while. At that point, maybe they'll back off, but we're not going to get there, not if the stock market goes down. Right. It's going it's so to cut it- those numbers. Yeah, so it's, it's commodity inflation that the Fed is really worried about, and you know, they don't care about financial market inflation. That's what we've had for years and decades. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But when they start seeing commodity inflation, that impacts the people with their, you know, their gas bills, their electric mm-hmm. bills, you know, the, the cost of living. And that's when the politicians yeah. start to have a lot of trouble. But then and again, so if, they, if they try to intervene to halt that by changing monetary policy, they're going to hurt the stock market once it gets exactly. going down. Because the stock market exactly. is dependent upon that uh, river flow from the Fed. So the Fed can't do it. Yeah. Uh, well, they've dug themselves into quite a hole uh, by it. massive, <laughs> massive deficit spending. You love yeah. it, I guess, because you see an yeah. opportunity. Uh, you know, we definitely think there's a reallocation of wealth to people who recognize what's going on and buy tangible assets, starting with the more liquid ones like gold and silver and so forth. But let me ask you, Michael, because commodity inflation flows from, I mean, let's say consumer inflation flows from commodity prices. Uh, you've been big on commodities. What are your views now on, see, oil just I hit. I think that it, the commodity markets are just, they're going to make him feel good because they're going to back off some. They already are. They broke down some today, for example. I don't think the back off in commodities has anything to do with, uh, it's a simple technical situation that needed to happen. They exploded out of a long-term momentum basis late last year in general. Around November, most commodities broke out by our metrics. The price percent gain was enormous across the board, with very few exceptions. However, they got into overbought situations that uh, basically urged those markets to congest, pull back. And I think you could see that kind of pullback, uh, which would vindicate what he said is, oh, you know, it's temporary. So the pressure on the Fed to uh, change policy is going to lessen because the commodities are pulling back. Uh, so actually, the commodity yeah. pullback makes the Fed look, oh, they were right, it is temporary, no problem. <laughs> so in that regard, a pullback in commodities is actually helpful for gold All right. because All right. it lessens the pressure on the Fed. But I think the pullback in commodities is a buying opportunity. It is not right. a downturn that lasts, period. All right. 
All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it go at that, Michael. Thank you so much for that. And I know you remain bullish on gold. Uh, what, just real quickly, with 30 seconds, what would it take for you to turn bearish on gold? Not, uh, to turn actually bearish, uh, highly unlikely, but to get super cautious again that, uh-oh, uh, we could get a downside spike going back through the lows we made in March. That's $125 below where you are right now. Mm-hmm. I don't want to okay. see those lows again. If I do, at that point, I would think some kind of chaotic emotional event could occur. I think it would be temporary because, again, if you start to take prices of assets down again, not just gold but other assets, the Fed is going to go berserk. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there's only one outcome to that. For gold. All right, we know what that is. Yeah, yeah Endless amounts is, yeah. of money printing and uh, yeah. debasing of the currency, which means gold goes up and other commodities right. as well. Well, Mike, Michael, thank you so much for being with us again, and always a pleasure having you. Uh, you we'll Jay. look to do it in a, in a couple of weeks again. All right, folks, well, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. Michael Hudson is going to be with us to give us an update on hand and metals uh, and uh, that company's progress towards outlining what looks to be a very massive sedimentary hosted copper silver project. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Hudson. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Firefox Gold is actively exploring in Finland, where recent discoveries have sparked a new gold rush. Firefox controls a major portion of a prospective gold belt, giving the company a distinct advantage for exploration and strategic partnerships. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, will put Firefox on the crest of the coming wave of gold discoveries. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates. SK Mining Corp. Trading under the symbol ESK on the TSX Venture and ESKYF on the OTCQB is a mineral exploration company targeting precious metals, rich VMS deposits in the heart of British Columbia's Golden Triangle. SK Mining controls a prospective land package totaling 130,000 acres, which lies across a geologic trend that once hosted the prolific SK Creek Mine. With a world-renowned geological team, funding in place, and shareholders such as Eric Sprott, SK Mining is on the cusp of a world-class discovery. Go to skmining.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again Michael Hudson, 
Michael is the CEO and chairman of Hannon Metals, which is exploring various massive sedimentary hosted silver and copper targets in Peru. The company has recently attracted a major Japanese company to to a joint venture of a portion of its holdings there, about a third of their holdings, in fact. And that's a move, I believe, that reduces the risk of this small cap company. And without taking away... Uh, what I think is a very, very significant upside potential, given the near-surface scale and also the high grades that have been reported from the surface samples. Uh, Hannon trades uh, in Toronto under the symbol H-A-N. You can buy it down here in the States, as I have, under the symbol H-A-N-N-F. We've got 85.3 million shares outstanding, only 30 cents Canadian, giving it a market cap, as I say, 26 million in Canadian numbers, which is minuscule compared to the other major landholders. I think something like over 2,000 square kilometers that Hannon holds. Uh, puts it right in the in the middle of some giant companies like Rio Tinto, like uh, Fresnillo, Peru, Valet Exploration, BHP Billiton, and Newmont. These are giants, and actually Hannon is right in there with those big guys, but with a market cap very small compared to those guys that have multi-billion dollar market caps. Michael, thank you so much for joining me again. Jay, always a pleasure. <clears throat> so you have this massive land position. Uh, we've talked to you about it before, and I guess it was in April when we last spoke. Give us an update. I, I guess it was right after you joined up with Jogmec, that's the Japanese company, in, in a joint venture at San Martin. It was right after that that we last spoke. Talk to us a little bit about that, what your plans are on San Martin, where Jogmec can actually earn, I think, 75% by spending upwards to $35 million U.S. money. Uh, and deliver a feasibility study. But what are the plans right now uh, for that San Martin project on that joint venture arrangement? Jogmec are the Japanese government, Jay. Uh, They're the branch of the Japanese government that goes out searching for metal supply for Japanese industry. Um, They're very good long-term partners. They've helped helped build many projects worldwide. Uh, You can hear my accent. It's Australian and now, the Japanese were instrumental in building what is our largest export today, the iron ore business, back in the 50s and 60s. And so they've had a long-term uh, strategy to, to, to support the industry in this way and, um, and of course, support Japan's growth in that way. So they've, they've joined ventured on about a third of our ground holding in Peru in this sediment-hosted copper-silver District and it is a district. We're talking over 100 kilometres of strike alone in in this Jogmec joint venture. Uh, we, we've really we did the deal back with them in December. We got on the ground at the start of December, uh, and really the last six months have been a, a rapid growth of understanding, permitting, and and de-risking the project. So we started back uh, six months ago with boulders and a few outcrops and, and evidence there was a lot of copper in the system. And, uh, and since then, you know, we've had literally, um, you know, 20 plus people, uh, in the field doing a lot of work and de-risking this huge, vast scale of a project down. So, um, basically scale definition, I think is, is what we, we're talking about. And, and so we've been, we've been, Doing a lot of geological mapping, understanding, and and the big breakthrough has actually been with soil sampling, a, a, a common technique in our industry. But it's demonstrated uh, continuity at the tens of meter scale in the right geological horizon over, I think, 18 kilometers in one area that we're focused in at the moment. So so we're starting to see the de-risking of the continuity 
and then um, and then uh, we're applying some fantastic technologies. Um, we're working in fairly tra- challenging terrain. So even the soil sampling, we're getting real-time assays with portable XRF guns, which which are, are handheld instruments that give us real-time information, and and that that allows us to sample that double the rate, which basically means uh, you're you're really increasing your chances of discovery and that definition. And and we're just about to fly a, a half a million dollar Canadian lidar survey over the area, which which is another very cool piece of technology that really has only come has come leaps and bounds in the last few years in terms of being able to map the rocks and the geology um, beneath this canopy. So lot, lots has been happening, plus de-risking with permitting, which will lead towards drilling. And uh, drilling is, of course, what we want to see, I'm sure, as a shareholder. I, surface samples are always very nice, and especially you're saying you're seeing continuity from the soil samples. That's that's encouraging. But what we really like to see is that third dimension, you know, that drill uh, truth machine goes down and suggests you've got X number of meters of mineralization and that gets people excited. When might we start to see some drilling either on your own 100% owned properties or the San Martin that you're joint venturing with Jogmec? The most advanced from a geological perspective is San Martin with Jogmec and, and we, we announced back in um, May the start of the DIA uh, or, or in, in English that would translate to the EIA which is the, the process to obtain drill permits in Peru and, and we could only do that when we really knew where we wanted to drill. Um, that that's one of the challenges of having such a large system. Where do you where do you focus on early in the piece? And and that was uh, all, where all our geological and geochemical work uh, that we've done over the last six months has sort of focused focused us towards. So so that uh, process to simply answer your question, Jay, will take most of this year, and we will be drilling early next year. Uh, Q1, ideally, maybe late Q1, Q2 is probably the realistic time frame that uh, faces the industry. But uh, but we're doing it properly. We're doing it appropriately. We're working with the local people who've given us approval to be working there. And that's the key step, um, which uh, many companies uh, hit a hurdle if they can't get the locals to sign off on on that work and, and where you'd like to go. So that's uh, that's where we're at. The drilling will take place first and First will be at San Martin, and then I guess correct. Uh, what sort of drivers might we look for in the meantime, though? I mean, are there, are there other, I suppose, surface samples you'll be talking about um, over extensive strike lengths, or what? What can we look forward to? Yeah, so I touched on it before. So I mean, we're still working over this huge area. We've had to focus <laughs> because everybody wants us to drill, and you've indicated that, and we want to drill to determine. Sure. <laughs> that the tenor of the system, but we're dealing with such a large system here. So we're, we're still running regional stream sediment surveys to to de-risk, um, well, to focus in on the larger area and, and, and work out where stage two drill area will be in stage three. And, and then we're doing lots of reconnaissance geology. This LIDAR technology, which is laser scanning through the forest um, to the, to the flor- forest floor, which can help map the geology, will be infinitely helpful in terms of understanding that pancake geology that, uh, uh, that where the mineralization forms will be able to tr- chase it we'll be able to see where the faults and structures are and 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 understand more about the controls of mineralization and really start be getting to the next level of not just trying to find copper but trying to find the highest grade 
copper parts of the system, which is really the key here. When I mean, there's a lot of copper, and now we've got to start finding the grade, and we know the grades can be very high in this system. You know, we're seeing boulders mm-hmm. and outcrops commonly from 5 to 10% copper, which is really unheard of in the oh. industry in terms of this, the scale um, that we're seeing it at. And, of, of course, all this extra work that you're doing, if it can help you pinpoint those high-grade sections first and early on, that will be very helpful to your share price and the ability to raise capital later on. Peru just had an election. Uh, you've also had to deal with COVID, which has been really burdensome, I think, for people operating in Peru. Where do both of those, maybe you could comment briefly on both of those issues, the politics as well as COVID? Well, they're so intertwined, I think, worldwide now, uh, Jay, so we can we can talk about them in, in, in the one sentence, really. I mean, Peru has had a, a very bad outcome from a COVID point of view, um, especially outside the, the major cities. I think they've had the highest uh, per capita death rate from COVID on a global level. Um, we're, we're dealing with it um, right now. It's, um, it's something that we, we have to work very hard to keep the, the people we employ and the stakeholders in which we go and work uh, free of COVID in, in a country that's still really struggling to get on top of things. Um, fortunately, vaccinations are just starting. I mean, I, I think uh, the U.S. has been fantastic. There's been hundreds of thousands of Peruvians who've travelled up to the U.S. to be vaccinated uh, as they haven't been able to get the vaccine in country yet. Uh, so it's 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 improving, I think, but still there's a lot of bad outcomes. And then that's led to a, a great um, a rising by the, the disaffected classes, basically, who haven't had those those facilities to, to help them during COVID. And, and, and Peru has seen a huge amount of wealth generated over the last 25 years, but it's it's really gone to more or less half the population, I think you could say. Um, the other half hasn't seen that that move to the middle class that that half the country has. And as it's going through this change, um, you know, it's uh, that that other half that hasn't seen the change and has been affected by COVID has had a louder voices uh, where the world's changing and allowing allowing everybody to have a, a, a stronger voice. And that's led to a, a, a an election that was basically split almost 50-50 between two very different end members, Castillo, a, a Marxist and, and uh, a left-wing politician who who wants to uh, return a lot of the country back to the people and and is, has, has had a lot of rhetoric that hasn't been helpful to our industry. Um, and especially earlier on in the camp in his campaign, he, he tempered it as he started to lead. And then on the other side was Keiko Fujimori, whose father really was responsible for bringing Peru out of the quagmire during the early 90s when it was a, it was an unin, uninhabitable, uninvestable country for most most of us, right? So, so it's been really interesting. It's separated by 40,000 votes, I think, um, across the whole country. Really polarized city and country people. And 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 Castillo looks like he's going to get across the line, but being challenged, it's a month since the election, no decision's been made yet. But uh, I, I think there, of course, will be changes, but Peru really, really relies so much on the mining industry that uh, that's, that it will be business with, with some changes and, and, and highlight what we just touched on before. Those relationships with local stakeholders and local communities will become even more important. Right. And smaller companies like yours, a lot of times, I know, maybe by necessity or whatever, uh, tend to do better with with locals and some of the big guys that have more connections with, with the politicians at the top. 
So, uh, well, it's going to be very interesting. Are you well-funded then? I think a lot of the funding is coming from uh, JOGMEC for San Martin, right? But you're, you're okay? Your funding uh, needs uh, taken care of for now? They are, Jay. We, we've had um, you know, upwards of a million dollars of warrants come in over the last week. Uh, we announced back in April there was another million dollars of warrants. So we, we're self-funding the company through warrant conversions and then JOGMEC, who are spending 100% of the the, the, the dollars at, at San Martin. Uh, we've got m- many crews working on our two-thirds of the ground, um, looking for new sediment-hosted copper and porphyry copper golds that uh, are as equally as exciting, and, and we can fund that exploration out of our own pocket um, without, without a problem. All right. Anything else you'd like to mention real quickly? Uh, it's, it's, it's just an unusual company, Jay. We're, we're really breaking new frontiers. The opportunity is huge. Peru comes with its risks, but uh, risks that uh, I think uh, are manageable. And um, I, I thank you again for your interest in, in Hannon. Oh, it's absolutely an exciting story. Um, we'd like to see those drill results tomorrow rather than a year from now, but it is what it is, uh, and I think it would be well worth waiting for, uh, for the results. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for spending the time with us again, and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime in the near future, hopefully. All right, folks, well, that is, uh, that's, uh, that's it for this segment. We do have to go to break, but don't go away because former New South Wales judge and author Michael Pembroke will be with us uh, to talk about his, his latest book titled America in Retreat. Very important, I think, for Americans to get this perspective. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Pembroke. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. Lion Wine Metals is focused on high grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. Labrador Gold is an exploration company focused on its flagship Kingsway project located in central Newfoundland Gold District. Labrador Gold's first phase drilling program has successfully identified high-grade gold mineralization, including a 3.6-meter intercept, grading 20.6 grams per ton gold, and 1.85 meters, grading 50.38 gram per ton gold. The company has approximately $35 million in the treasury and is led by a world-class team of CEO Roger Moss and technical advisors Sean Ryan and Quentin Henney. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time former New South Wales Supreme Court judge and author Michael Pembroke. He studied history, French, and politics at university, uh, intending to become a diplomat, but instead he turned to the law and became a judge, undertaking a writing career in his spare time. Mr. Pembroke was born in Australia, but his first school was at Sandhurst, and his final university was at Cambridge in in the U.K., Michael has traveled extensively, lived in the United States, um, in the United Kingdom, and colonial Southeast Asia, as well as in Trump's America. He was uh, in Washington, D.C. at the time of Watergate, Chicago, when the Obama uh, legislature, the Obamacare legislation was passed, uh, New York City shortly before 9-11, and New Jersey during the first year of the Trump presidency, as I just noted. For his previous book, Travel Through North Korea with from the Yula River to the DMZ, in his new book, uh, which is the subject of this discussion, uh, America in Retreat, Michael Pembroke sketches the history of America's retreat from universal principles to provide a clear-eyed analysis of the dangers of American exceptionalism. Welcome, Michael, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm really glad to have you with me. Pleasure to be here, Jay. Yeah, so... Um, you know, since World War II, America has thought of itself as an exceptional nation. We, we hear it all the time. It's sort of in our DNA now. We think that way. We've had a mission, it seems, we think, uh, to create other countries in our own image. In what ways has America been an exceptional nation? And to what extent, if any, do you think exceptionalism still applies to America? Because I, I really think most Americans, they, they just really believe that we are an exceptional nation. Well, um, America was certainly exceptional after World War II. It was the richest and most powerful country in the world. And it led the world in establishing the United Nations, mm-hmm. uh, in formulating the United Nations Charter, and uh, a few years later in, in formulating the, um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But um, it's a great shame, I think, that in April 1945, um, Roosevelt died and the presidency passed to Harry Truman. Truman was a far more political man, um, um, old school, uh, very hardline anti-communist, and things changed very rapidly. They almost unraveled uh, after 1945. So, you know, take the Cold War, for example, Soviet Russia was on its knees. It was destroyed. It it, 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 it had suffered more than any other country. It was no threat to anyone. Um, But under Harry Truman, the United States surrounded it with nuclear missiles and warheads and created the very threat that it professed to to need protection against. In other words, um, when... Soviet Russia was surrounded by nuclear missiles and warheads in the period 1947-48. It reacted in the the way that you would expect. It started to spend money on creating its own nuclear warhead. Its first test of a nuclear warhead was not till 1949. And so, um, and there was no stage throughout the 1950s 
when the Soviet nuclear capability was anything like that of the United States, even though Americans were told, Americans of my parents' generation and your parents' generation were told that uh, we're, at, we're at risk at any time of being overrun by the Soviets. Yeah. It, was, it was unfortunately a, a great uh, overreach. Mm-hmm. And overreach, I'm afraid, is... is um, is what we saw then in the Korean War. Um, the, 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 not, the, not the current book, but the last book I wrote about was about the Korean War, and it got me thinking along these lines. Its subtitle is Where the American Century Began. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that war uh, ought to have been over in, in the first three months because the United Nations Security Council um, uh, ruling w- uh, was... Uh, that um, um, the security of the border should be restored. That's what uh, the, the collective forces of the, of the US and the uh, other allied forces set out to do. But, um, and that was achieved after three months. We hear a lot about um, uh, Pusan and, um, and the, uh, the remarkable um, invasion on the west coast that MacArthur engineered, but that was all in the first three months. And and by about um, sub- late September 1950, peace and security, if security at least, if not peace, had been restored at the thirty-eighth parallel. Mm-hmm. But then Harry Truman and Dean Acheson and and others around them made a fateful decision. They wanted to engage in a pro- in, in a process of regime change, so they, having complained about the North Koreans crossing the thirty eighth parallel and heading south, they had no compunction about ignoring that border, crossing the thirty eighth parallel, heading north, and trying to um, take out Pyongyang. Of course, China was nothing to do with that war at that stage. Mm-hmm. It was only when the US-led forces, and they represented 95% of the UN force, uh, got right up to the Yalu River on the Chinese border at Manchuria that China decided that it couldn't hold back anymore. So what, be- what was effectively a civil conflict, an attempt to reunify the country that had been divided by the Americans in '45, became a global conflict. And it, it, it made things worse. And the pattern has been repeated. I could go on. Yeah. But, um, you know, that, uh, they, they've, um, they, they've created the very threat which they suggested in the first place they needed protection against. Right. What do you think drove that? Why, uh, why this regime change? Because this is a theme of America uh, since then, actually. And most Americans aren't aware of our CIA's activity in various countries, as you outline in your book. Um, you know, I've been aware because I'm a student of this sort of thing, but most Americans, it's certainly not part of something you're going to hear very much about. After all, we suggested that we don't want Putin anywhere near our elections. He better stay away from whatever goes on here. Uh, but as we, it's very well known and documented that the CIA has been very active in overthrowing governments and fomenting coup d'etats and so on and so forth. Eisenhower warned about the military-industrial complex, you, know, you noted in your book, and several other people who were concerned about an overreach, a military that became so dominant that it basically seems to control the politics. There was once upon a time when, when Democrats, uh, at least a part of the Democrat Party, uh, was not interested in, in this sort of military 
uh, expedition overseas. But now they've also seemed to have joined, for the most part, um, this whole military-industrial complex that it seems to me Eisenhower was warning about. But why do you think? Is it just a monetary? Is it a money? Is it a money-grabbing thing? Is it? I mean, empires do these things. I realize. But what are what? Why did starting with Korea? Why do you think we've been on this binge? Um, I think there's a propensity um, among among Americans, or at least among the American elites in Washington, to see the world in black and white terms, uh, and an us and them uh, approach, and uh, that was very clear um, um, during the pre- recent presidency of George Bush uh, Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been clear more or less all along, mm-hmm. um, starting from Truman and going through for the 11 or 12 or 13 presidents since then. Uh, the, 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 career, the career issue blew up because of uh, a concern about communism, which, in, which, which, which was pervasive throughout the 50s and 60s. Uh, we, in, in more recent times, we've had a concern about um, um, Islamic regimes uh, or, or radical Islam. And more recent times since, we've had a concern which President Biden expresses as authoritarian states against democratic states. It's all much the same, really. It's, you know, it's us and them. It's good and bad. It's, it's, uh, it's binary. And it's not like that. You know, one of the most intelligent and um, clever uh, government leaders around the world, I think, is um, Lee, Lee Hsien Lung, the Prime Minister of Singapore. Mm. And he has been saying um, to all the world leaders, starting at um, uh, one of those uh, global conferences about three or four years ago, the world is a very complex and diverse place. It's made up of all sorts of different states with different approaches, different, and there are many democracies which are, which are you know, uh, barely democracies, and and, um, and and there are many types of authoritarian states. We've just all got to live in a way in which we can accommodate each other, and we cannot assume that one is better than the other, or one is right and the other is wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, I I don't have any problem with standing up for human rights, you know, in different parts of the world. That's almost a separate issue. You you can stand up and complain about what appear to be human rights abuses in Western China, but it doesn't mean that you shape your foreign policy around that and refuse to deal with China mm-hmm. or uh, assume that China is um, inferior to you. China actually has been fighting and dealing with the Uyghur problem in Western China, in in Xinjiang, for 2,000 years. Well, not quite 2,000 years. They've been, the the Uyghurs only came into existence more recently than that, about 1,000 years ago. But before the Uyghurs, there were other problems with um, uh, the the inhabitants of the Xinjiang region in Western China. So it's been a constant concern for the Chinese. They deal with it differently to the way we deal with it. They're much more harsh with their citizens. Um, We, you know, that's that's not a reason to go to war with them. Yeah. We didn't go to war with with Germany because yeah. Hitler was um, was uh, abusing the Jews. It, it was because Hitler invaded Poland and threatened to invade the rest of Europe. So we, we've got to separate our moral concerns with our with the practical and pragmatic political issues that that ought to govern our relationships with each other. 
And so uh, I'm all in favor of pragmatism, frankly, but that ideology seems to seems to be the dominant moving force in the United States and has been for 75 years. Well, it is up until a point, and there comes a time when nations run into trouble. We're, I believe that we're in, in, uh, in some deep trouble uh, financially in the United States with this massive deficit. So we've, we've run these huge trade deficits, uh, chronic trade deficits, since we went off the gold standard in 1971. Uh, I believe that may be part of the... Um, the need to have the world's reserve currency, to have enough liquidity sloshing around the world that we intentionally almost ran trade deficits. It worked very well, the redistribution of wealth, I think, to the bankers and to the to government and so forth. If we could create money, we could finance Vietnam and we could finance a uh, great society program and so forth. So I sort of wonder if, if you would agree that there might be some connection there between when we went off the gold standard, we arranged with Saudi Arabia um, we would protect the family, but we needed to have oil priced in dollars. So every nation that needed to import oil had to, had to get dollars. And so there was a demand for dollars that didn't go away when we went off the gold standard. So I'm just wondering, we've gotten ourselves in this tremendous trade deficit. We're running these huge deficits. Uh, we can't raise interest rates anymore. They can't, they can't go up because we can't finance rates. There's concern about inflation. Meanwhile, China, as you point out in your book, is an ascending power, the One Belt, One Road uh, initiative. It seems to me they're, they're hooked, they took their trade surpluses and used it to build things. We were using borrowed money to, create, to, to bomb countries, essentially, and change the regimes. It seems to me that we're approaching a day of reckoning, perhaps, in the United States. What, what are your thoughts? Um, yes, uh- you know that um, 2,000 years ago, Jay, there were two great empires in the world, the Roman Empire in the West and the Chinese Empire under the Han Dynasty in the East. They hardly knew each other, but they were beginning to trade with each other. At least, at least China was sending silk to the West. Rome began to fall apart in the 3rd century uh, of the, of the uh, period after Christ. Mm-hmm partly because it could no longer afford its empire of military bases <laughs> and partly because it had a huge imbalance of trade with China because um, it was spending all its bullion on buying massive amounts of silk and precious goods from China, uh-huh. whereas China was, for China, silk was a renewable and infinite resource. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so... Um, there are similarities, I think, in, in what happened two millennia ago and what's happening today. Um, not quite the same, but uh, I, I don't see how the United States can continue to afford the amount of money it spends on defence uh, and, um, and security that, that at the moment, as you know, is, is um, equal to the next nine or ten countries in the world, right. three times more than China, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and ten times more than Russia and you know, many, many more times more than Germany, UK, other, other sophisticated countries. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not, it, it also fosters a sort of militaristic outlook on the world as if, um, as if having a bigger army and a bigger empire of bases makes you a stronger and better country, when it clearly doesn't. Yeah, Yeah, and we've we've had this massive redistribution of wealth as well that I think has come as a result of our currency regime, but that's another topic. Uh, China China is clearly uh, an ascending power. I think it's hard 
to deny that, even if you want to. You mentioned in your book there are nations that are recognizing this and are working well with China. They are, you know, America is hesitant to, to recognize this. We hear a lot of rhetoric from politicians how this must be, they must be stopped and so forth. But uh, you mentioned in your book there are, there are nations that are going to do quite well. I think you mentioned Europe uh, should fare better than perhaps the U.S., South America even, and Africa. And, of course, all those countries that are linked up to the One Belt, uh, One Road should do very well. I think that goes all the way into Europe, actually, I believe, uh, using the waterways and the yeah. roads and so forth. It's, a, it's an enormous enterprise that while we were, as I said, using uh, our resources to try to change governments, they were building things and, and trading, and we were consuming and they were saving. Uh, another factor, I guess, that doesn't bode well if you live beyond your means decade after decade, sooner or later you have to pay the piper. So could you talk a little bit about the countries that you think are going to do, the regions of the world perhaps, that are going to do better than, than, than others uh, with, the, you know, with China's ascension? Yeah. Well, the, um, the whole of East Asia, frankly, um, is recognizes, and, and frankly, that includes Japan, by the way, which is ambivalent. Uh, it's torn between United States and China, but it's historically, um, like most of East Asia, much more prepared to accommodate. Um, they've got to live with each other. Um, so there are benefits and opportunities from China's rise. There are some some risks, but the smart players um, uh, 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 you know, are positioning themselves to take advantage of the benefits and the opportunities. If someone is spending as much as China is spending on infrastructure, you know, there's there are great opportunities to be to be had there. The other areas where uh, you can see um, um, improvement and um, opportunities right through the middle of Asia, right through the, through the area from um, from China to the west through the, to the Central Asian republics and um, ultimately to the Mediterranean. Uh, Israel, of course, um, you know, is such a staunch US ally that it's unlikely to change. But, um, you know, Turkey uh, and, um, and Iran, they're major, major supporters of China. And um, the same applies in Africa. China is all over Africa. It has been for the last decade or more. Mm -hmm. And that all happened while the rest of the world was asleep. You can't travel around Africa without seeing Chinese bridges and banks and institutions and Chinese workers. I mean, it causes some unhappiness in some places because the Chinese workers, um, you know, sometimes keep to themselves and they don't employ African workers or indigenous people as much. Um, But that's just... You know that that's just that goes with the territory, and the same applies in much in, in large parts of Central and South America. So, while we've got the the West, and I, by, by that I mean UK, Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and and you know, there, there are attempts to bring in India and Japan, but they they're not quite there, and they won't ever be quite there. While, while the West is resisting um, to some extent, uh, it's, it's a bit futile, if you, I think, and um, uh, clever countries like Germany uh, and, and 
perhaps the European bloc more uh, in general, uh, are hedging their bets. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've, you, you know, there's, 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 there's a lot to be gained from China's rise if you're pragmatic about it. If you're ideological and, and jump up and down about mm-hmm. human rights abuses or what's happening in Taiwan, and, and you stay away and you seek to separate your your country from China, well, you'll, you'll ultimately lose. Yeah. Um, Boris Johnson said something the other day, which I was pleased to hear about. He said, those who call for a new Cold War on China or for us to s- sequester our, our economy entirely from China are, I think, mistaken. We have, to, we have a balance to strike and we need to have a clear-eyed relationship with China. Um, so, you know... There are hawks in all countries, but I think the hawks are wrong on the China issue. Well, I must ask you, with just a few minutes left here, you mentioned the ambivalence of Japan uh, with respect to China. I I have to wonder about your country, uh, where you are. Clearly, you have a lot of things to offer China, your raw materials and so forth. You are also, though, a close ally, as you just mentioned, with the United States. Uh, There must be some issues and some difficulties in balancing the two, because clearly uh, the future where it is with China. There are huge difficulties. And, uh, but, but at the moment we seem to be so much in the, uh, in the pocket of Washington that uh, it seems to be all one way. And we've alienated China um, enormously. um, uh, And we are, we are seen as doing Washington's bidding. Yeah. At the moment, so Australia, unlike New Zealand, um, which is more independent-minded, is um, is regarded in in Asia as um, as very conservative, very pro-American, and um, and in and uh, in a strangely contradictory position because China's our largest trading partner. Mm-hmm. It's, it's I think more than sixty percent of our exports go to China, right. most of which is. Minerals which we dig out of the ground. Yeah. Um, we we need China, and we can benefit from that relationship. But uh, at the moment, our current government is um, is, uh, is 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 not as clear-eyed as Boris Johnson would suggest you need to be. It's going to be interesting to watch, and of course, very important uh, which way things go with all these uh, different geopolitical interactions. But uh, Aside from reading your book, American Retreat, people should read that. There's so much. There's so much there. What would you say to people who are aware of China's ascension? Individuals living as I do in America, or uh, in your case in Australia, how should we be preparing as individuals for what is to come? Because you know we can't control what our government does so much, but as individuals, what advice would you give? I think the most important thing is to get to understand China. To do that, you need to understand the history. If you can, you need to learn some of the language. If you can, you need to associate and deal with Chinese people. You need, we need to, um, you know, stop treating them as, um, as, as the enemy, as, the, as, as um, in fact, Washington's strategic defense policy says. They're yeah. not the enemy. Uh, they're a competitor. Yeah. But we need to deal with them and accommodate them and live with them and, and yeah. take from them what we can. Indeed. And I think, you know, your, your youth, uh, traveling as a young boy, uh, yeah. various cultures around the world most certainly uh, was influential in giving you a view of the world. That we- 
I, I really appreciate this book, and I, I I really love it. It's it's really a wonderful book. I'm really glad that you'd spend some time with us uh, today to explain it. And and we can't do justice to the book in a few minutes here. But I want to thank you very much for taking the time to share with our, your thoughts with our listeners. It's, it's it's very wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Jay, for the opportunity. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Likewise, okay. well, folks. That is it for this week. Uh, next week. Uh, Alistair McLeod of Gold Money will be with me, Dr. Quentin Henning, to discuss uh, Lion One Metals, and Patrick Highsmith to discuss Firefox Gold. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Gold Corporation, trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi-million ounce gold deposit in Nevada with an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2021, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors, a globally recognized technical team, report coverage from industry gold experts, and a strong treasury. Visit NVGoldCorp.com to learn more on this exciting story.